You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast whose grapes aren't really full of wrath, they're just sort of aggravated and stressed out. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today we're going to talk about... Yams. Yeah, that was what I was going to say, actually. <laughs> we're going to talk about yams. We're also going to talk A about... A story as old as time. Yams. Tale as old as yams. Yeah, we're going to talk about yams. We're also going to talk about colonization and toxic masculinity and Nigeria. Because we're talking about Things Fall Apart by Chenua Achebe. Other things as old as time. Things that fall apart. Well, <laughs> colonization, Nigeria, it's all there. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Like the root vegetable that is so much of the focus of the book, Things Fall Apart has been a staple of many a classroom's reading list. And, well, here's the thing, RJ... What what did you remember the most when you read it? Turning and turning in the widening guy. No, you're reading the, the falcon you're, cannot hear the falconer. You're reading the things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Yeah. Mere anarchy is so, loosed upon the world. Mere anarchy. You want to try that again? Meerkats. Meerkats are loosed upon the world. Yep. You're quoting the uh, W.B. Yeats poem, The Second Coming. Everyone likes to use that for, like, the title for bummer things. Also, just for funsies, a 2016 analysis showed that the lines from this poem were quoted more often in the first seven months of 2016 than in any of the preceding 30 years. It's coming back. Yeats is hot. (laughs) We're bringing apocalyptic terror back. So... Before you just cut me off for no reason to read uh, the chunk of a poem from which the book takes its title, I was asking you a question. Well, that's how the book opens. It's like the opening pages. Yes. So I remember that. Okay. And then I read some more. Yeah. There was wrestling and yams. Yeah. Other stuff happened. Yes. At a job interview, I dropped the allegory from Things Fall Apart. When I forget which character it is now. It's about how they tell the story of hunting the animals, but it's always told from the hunter's point of view. How did that come up in a job interview? Well, you see. Oh, God. There's those among us in our society that can't speak for themselves, Megan, and so they can't tell their own story. And so the hunters tell their story and make them into prey. Wait, so you dropped a reference to things fall apart at your law job interview yep all right he ate it up baller move i said (laughs) find this and more at your local library chenua (laughs) achebe things fall apart oh it's good that you at least cite your sources yeah well i guess i'm just terrible because if you had asked me before doing this what i remember of things fall apart my answer just would have been yams i remember that yams were very important. I mean, uh, salient plot points as well, but mostly yams. And as I looked online, I realized that I am not alone in this case. Most kids who were forced to uh, read this book as part of their curriculum have just 
forgotten the majority of it, but they remember the yams. I was even reading one uh, account of someone saying that when they read it in high school, them and their friends were just so taken by it that they formed a gang called the Yam Squad. A child gets hacked to death with machetes in this book, and Spoilers. I forgot about it, and everyone forgets about it, but everyone remembers the yams. Also, for those of you listening and have access to the internet, look up what an African yam looks like. It's completely different than the yam you're thinking of if you're thinking of like a sweet potato. Or if you're like RJ and when you read it for the first time, you thought a yam was an animal. I did. A glorious animal out there in Africa. They're herding up the yams. The noble yam as it migrates across the Nigerian landscape. It's a beautiful image. <laughs> the migration of the yams. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Google yam pictures. African yam pictures. Why They're different. Work? I don't know if it helps with the story at all. Uh, maybe. Uh, so before we get into that story, though, y'all ought to know how it works by now, RJ? Yeah. Y'all know how to know how it works by now. Yams? Chenoa Chebe. How he works? Yes, tell me how he works. Tell us all how he works. He wrote a book. One day, I'm just going to strangle you. They'll hear. This is an audio medium. It'll It'll be our highest rated episode ever. No, I'm the fan favorite. Hashtag RJ's the best. Hashtag down with Megan. Wow. Hashtag... Fuck you. <laughs> Hashtag give RJ the crown. There is, there, the, it's right there. You can just put it on. All right, he's wearing Burger King crown. Let it be known. I'm the king. You're the king. Will you please tell the people about Chenoa Chebe Okay, stop talking. You gotta yep. frame it. I did frame it, and then you had a little bitch fit, and we had to put a cardboard crown on your head to pacify you. Chenoa Achebe, born Albert Chenoa Lumogo Achebe. I see. Born November 16th, 1930, lived all the way until March 21st, 2013. Born to parents who were part of the Protestant Church Mission Society in Igbo Town of Ogidi in southeastern Nigeria. His father had stopped practicing the religion of the Achebe's ancestors, but he still respected the traditions. But basically both of his parents were Christian at that point, or excuse me, Protestant at that point. And part of that can be seen in the fact that he was given the first name, Albert. But so even though his parents were Protestant, part of the way that they kept the tradition of their ancestors alive was Chinua's middle name, Chinua Lomogu, which translates to, May God Fight on My Behalf, which was basically a prayer for divine protection and stability. That's badass as fuck. That's way better than, like, George. I mean, if he took the first half, it just made God fight. That's even... That's, that's <laughs> awesome! Yeah, my name's Steve May God Fight Johnson. Other ways that his parents and his siblings kept the trend, uh, traditions alive was they told a lot of stories in their household. They were big on storytelling. Some of the books that he had as a child included a prose adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So I guess I had the Ebo version of the Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if they changed anything in the plot or if it was just translated, but it is the Igbo version. Huh. So he was educated at home until the age of six when he was enrolled at St. Philip's Central School. 
um, despite his protest. Originally, he had no, he had no six-year-old was going to be like, yeah, awesome, school time. He was put in basically the youngest class, which would have been kindergarten at the age of six. But he was quickly moved through um, to higher classes because the school's chaplain took note of Chenoa's intelligence. In fact, one teacher described him as the student with the best handwriting in all the school and also the best reading skills. The language of the school was English. And the purpose of that was not to just develop proficiency, but also to teach a common language for all the students. Because in Nigeria, there were a lot of different ethnic groups, and each ethnic group kind of spoke their own language. And so if all the kids had to learn English, everyone at least had a common tongue. It was also probably easier for the colonizers to deal with the natives at that point. More than likely. Chenoa described this phase of life later on as, quote, having to put away their different mother tongues and communicate in the language of their colonizers, which is what was happening. He also said the rule was strictly enforced and that he remembered the first time that he was punished for slipping back into uh, the Igbo language and it was when he was asking a boy to pass the soap. No word if that was in a shower. <laughs> Ew. But yeah, no, it's super fucked up because this was a thing that happened just like... A kind of across the board in places where, you know, white people came and fucked shit up. That in um, Australia with Aboriginal groups and peoples and in North America with Native Americans where, yeah, that they'd have these kids that that would be kind of assimilated in schools that were run by, like you said, usually like chaplains or religious people or whatever. And speaking your language was like a punishment thing. Like you were going to speak the English, you were going to do all the proper English things. And because of that, like entire languages were lost and died out because they were just sort of stamped out in a complete generation. White people suck. <laughs> now, Chenoa, he was a nerd, as we've covered. He was not very athletic. And so there was a group of six other students with Chenoa who were basically the nerd group. Aww. Their study habits were so intense that the headmaster of the school had to ban reading of textbooks from 5 to 6 o'clock in the afternoon just to get <laughs> them to do something other than read their books. Oh my god. Like, that's the, that's the nerdiest thing I could think of, where it's like your teacher has to be like, no, but stop. Like, maybe, maybe go do something else. Maybe go... Go play, go play a game. Put the book down. For at least one hour a day. <laughs> at least one hour a day. Oh, man. Nerd squad. Now, when uh, Chenoa was, was allowed to read, apparently the school had what Chenoa called a, quote, wonderful library. Among the books that Chenoa read as a child was Gulliver's Travels, David Copperfield, Treasure Island. I don't know if you're noticing a theme with the books they made available. Um, <laughs> nope. He also did read uh, Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, which is an autobiography of an American former slave. Chenoa, quote, found it sad, but it showed him another dimension of reality. Chenoa later recalled that as a reader that he, quote, took sides with the white characters against the savages. He even developed a dislike for Africans. Quote, the white man was good and reasonable and intelligent and courageous. The savages arrayed against him were sinister and stupid or at the most cunning i hated their guts this is why representation in media is important so chenoa excelled at school 
he did well in school all the way up until he went to university. At that point, he won a scholarship to study medicine, actually. But once he got to university, he changed his studies to English literature. As many do. So, why the change? Well, while at university, he read Joyce Carey's 1939 work, Mr. Johnson, about a cheerful Nigerian man who, among other things, works for an abusive British store owner. And Chetta was was so disturbed by the portrayal in the book of the Nigerian character as either a savage or a buffoon that he basically decided to become a writer and a teacher to help change representation. Have you ever read a book so fucking bad that you went, nah, I am going to change the my entire career path to fix this? <laughs> and so at that point, Chenoa was thinking about the different ways that he could effectuate change, and he was trying to decide, like, what's the next step for him? So once he finished university, he went on to teach English, as one would if you're going to work in literature. Because there ain't much else you can do. He landed a job at the Merchants of Light School at Oba. The school was a bit ramshackle. Four months after Chenoa started teaching there, the school closed down. Ooh. Not all was lost. He did land a sweet gig at NBS, the Nigerian Broadcasting Service, which is like the CBS of Nigeria. It's Nigeria's most watched (laughs) network, which shows like CSI Lagos, (laughs) the Late Late Show with Bright Okpocha, Survivor New York City. You're very proud of yourself right now, aren't you? And Thursday Night Football, which us Delatons refer to as soccer. Ah, uh, you brought it home there. <laughs> Remember, NBS cares. It was during his time working at NBS that he seriously began to write. Given his background, his drive, and being titled an Ebo chieftain himself, it should be no surprise that Chenua's novels focus on the traditions of the Ebo society, the effect of Christian influences, um, and basically the clash of Western culture coming into Africa and clashing up against African values during the uh, colonial era. His style relies on the oral tradition that his family instilled in him and that he practiced going forward, and he pulls um, from Nigerian folk stories, proverbs, and uh, other... (laughs) Other such words. (laughs) (laughs) Folk stories, proverbs. You You get the idea. And similar kinds of imagery. Nice save. Things. Stuff. And the first novel he wrote in 1958 at the tender age of 28, Things Fall Apart. Shit. I did not realize he was 28 when he wrote it. Wow. Okay, that's that's another one of those, so what are you doing with your life situations? Yes, Things Fall Apart, or as I'm now going to refer to it, Daddy Issues, the book. So the novel opens with a flashback, because of course it does. What book... Do we read ever that actually starts when it fucking starts? Frankenstein. I guess, well, kind, well, no, it still doesn't start when it starts because that's in a letter. As the guy yeah, writes as the it. Guy, yeah. Uh, so the novel opens with a flashback to our protagonist, Okonkwo, being just super manly because he's beating another dude in a wrestling match who was previously undefeated. And the Rock? No, the, the cat. I don't really know of a joke there. The guy's name was The Cat instead of The Rock. Something, something, the people's eyebrow. Moving on. Do you smell <laughs> what The Rock is cooking? That was, yeah. 
I'm sure everyone in 1998 really appreciated that joke. Anyway, the village is just, like, super into this, and we flash forward to present Okonkwo, who is, like, basically top dog around those parts because he's huge and always ready to punch anyone who disagrees with him. Wouldn't he be top cat? I dislike you. We learn that his drive... Are you done? Uh, We learn that his drive to be successful and punch-ready is born of a desperate desire to not be a lazy freeloader like his dad, Unoka, a chill dude who liked to hang out, play music, and drink a lot. But this delightful, I mean, wouldn't we all, but this delightful lifestyle meant that he owed a bunch of people a lot of money. And so he was looked down by everyone and died in disgrace and debt. So Okonkwo is, like, hyper-focused on being the opposite of his dad, with three wives, two tribal titles, like, ten kids, a successful yam farm, and absolutely zero chill. His wives are scared of him. He's abusive toward his son, Noye. He basically internalized, don't be a failure like your dad, into just be aggro literally all the time. Not really differentiating between working super hard on his yam farm and beating the crap out of his son if he shows an inclination towards anything being anything but just super manly like his dad, who's just so manly. I'm not overcompensating. You're overcompensating. I'm Okonkwo. So you're saying Okonkwo in 2017 would be the guy who owns a F-250 and have the big old balls off the uh, hitch on the back? Yes. Yes, I am. Nice. So, after a kind of murdery dispute uh, with a neighboring tribe where one dude just wanders into their village and kills a woman, it's resolved by the other tribe being like, oh, our bad, here, take one of our women instead, and also this small boy, to sweeten the deal. Which is weird. And uh, for whatever reason, this boy is placed in Okonkwo's care, and he kind of sort of adopts him. And I'm sure that this will be a heartwarming story, where a little orphan Ikimifuna slowly melts a Konkwo's hard exterior and teaches him how to be a better father than his own dad was, and that it's okay to have feelings. Aww. On NBS tonight, the heartwarming tale. Things fall apart. A man's hard heart slowly falls away to show the inner softness that was always there. Just ignore that thing I said at the beginning of the podcast about a child getting macheted to death. (laughs) With love. Yeah, with love. (laughs) Tonight on NBS, we learn the sharpest machete of all is the heart. He takes him out for ice cream on his F-250. So as the the book goes on, we learn more about Okonkwo having to be a sort of self-made man because of his freeloading dad who died sick and penniless with no friends due to the whole not paying his debts thing. So Okonkwo has had to work for like literally everything he has. Nothing was handed to him. His first attempts at yam farming, which is kind of like yam farming is like the stick by which all things are judged, which is why everybody remembers the yams. Uh, but, so his first attempts to farm them yams are literally the worst. They fail multiple times, but he's just so stubborn and so very manly that he starts making the yams grow through, like, sheer force of will. Presumably by screaming at them. And, uh, so, here's the thing. If you haven't realized it yet, Okonkwo's kind of an asshole. 
he's very respected in the village, and he works crazy hard. But when people are like, hey, Okonkwo, maybe tone it down a bit and, you know, try to be a little humble and don't threaten to beat the living shit out of anyone who disagrees with you, they receive the rational reaction of, no, fuck you, I'll kick your ass, I'll kick everyone's ass, I'll kick my own ass. That's a man. That's man talk. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta go outside and kick your own ass. This guy should have been a football coach. Are you saying um, Okonkwo is uh, the Jim Harbaugh of no one knows pre-colonialized Jim Harbaugh Nigeria? Why? You want to go for like, things people know? No, I'm saying he's the Bill Belichick. Okay, I guess more people will know who that is. Nah. Sports references. That's what people come to listen to Ono Lit Class for. So, Ikimufuna lives with Okonkwo now, and he's super unhappy and freaked out, as you imagine a small child would be after being torn from their home and placed in a strange new one where the dad is constantly operating at 125%. Eventually, though, he does kind of get used to it, and people really like Ikimufuna. He's just a, a very, like, likable, endearing kid. Even Okonkwo likes him, though he never says it, because feelings are for pussies. And so then there's this thing that happens in the village called the Week of Peace, when people are specifically supposed to be chill with each other. And of course, Akanko can't deal with that, so how do, you, how do you think he handles the Week of Peace? Not well. Yeah, that's a, it's a pretty good guess. He uh, beats one of his wives, and the village is just like, okay, dude, for real, like, you can stop now. Go and tell the gods you're sorry for being a jackal because you, like, specifically disturbed the week of peace. But Akakwo is too proud for that noise, and everybody is seriously annoyed by it, but eventually they get over it, and whatever, it's planting season. Time to put seeds in the ground. And uh, Akakwo knows that Nyoe and Ikimifuna are too young to really be all that great at planting, like they're gonna struggle with it, but he bullies and screams at them anyway, so that they'll grow up tough, because Okonkwo is the best at parenting, slash yam planting and football coaching. Some Friday night tykes shit going on here. Dance moms. <laughs> Okonkwo is dance moms. Yeah, yeah, for real, though. So more time passes, and now... It's time for the Feast of the Yam, a.k.a. the Yamming. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Everyone is super excited, except everyone's favorite village buzzkill, who can't relax for one single fucking second, and is so keyed up by the idea of a good time that he goes all apeshit and threatens his family with a gun. Now, since this was the Festival of the Yam, was he or anyone dressed as a yam? Everyone's favorite <laughs> root vegetable. I would like to imagine that he was, in fact, dressed as a yam, like in a giant yam costume, while he was waving a gun at his family. Old Saint Yam. <laughs> Bringing all the yams to the good little boys and girls. This is terrible. He knows when you're naughty. He knows when you're nice. Saint Yam. And if you're naughty, he beats the shit out of you. <laughs> wow. During this time, we also learn a little more about another of Okonkwo's children, a girl named Azinma, who is curious and headstrong, and Okonkwo is actually very fond of her and finds himself constantly wishing that she had been born a boy so that he could have a good and proper son, instead of all these shitty sons, I guess. 
Uh, so the yamming goes smoothly, and three generally uneventful years pass, which in not just this book, but pretty much any book, means that bad times are on the horizon. Ooh. That sounded less like an interested audience and more like a ghost, like oh, gently yeah, scary, at your bedside. Scary Three years later. <laughs> so at this point, Ikimafuna has pretty much assimilated completely into Konko's family. And him and Noi are buddies, and they both try to be very manly to appease their dad, even though uh, Noi really likes a lot of <gasps> feminine activities, like listening to his mom's folktales and having normal people feelings, which had been driving Konko up the wall because, God forbid, he has a son with feelings. But Ikimafuno had kind of helped drive a little bit of that away, because Ikimafuno was a good, manly boy, and Nooe wanted to be like him. And then, out of the blue, the village elders come to Okonkwo and are like, Hey, remember when we got Ikimafuna as part of that penance from the other village after they killed one of us? Well, even though it's three years later, we feel like it's time to collect on that one, and we're gonna kill him. So, yeah, that's awful. So the men who are going to do it plan to lead Ikimifuna away from the village and advise Okonkwo not to come with because you're basically his dad and this is going to get pretty fucked up, but he does anyway. They tell Ikimifuna that they're sending him back home and like a trusting dumb little puppy who thinks he's going to the dog park and not the vet, he believes them. Because as crazy as Okonkwo is, Ikimifuna genuinely believes that since Okonkwo is basically his dad, he would never really hurt him. Ugh. I don't even have a joke for that. It's just really sad. Kids should have known better. It, you know what? It's true. It's not like uh, there wasn't a lot of warning. <sighs> so, the time finally comes, and the men are about to hack a child to pieces. And they're like, hey, Okonkwo, maybe stay over there so you don't have to see this bit. And, of course, Okonkwo is all... What do you call me, a pussy? Because I won't stab my son? Shows what you know, asshole! And he basically delivers the killing blow. So that no one thinks he's a wuss. Even though no one does. And instead, they're all like, Akakwa, what the fuck? Like, we were gonna kill him basically anyway, but uh, you just really went for it, huh? Gave him a tombstone pile driver. Are all of your jokes going to be either football or wrestling based? John 316. Okay. And so, I gave them my son. Or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but because Okonkwo isn't a complete monster, afterwards he feels extremely guilty about macheteing Ikimafuna to death, except then he represses the shit out of those feelings because only a woman would feel bad about having to hack their adopted son to bits, am I right? Things Weak. fall apart. A novel ostensibly about colonization, but also about fucked up toxic masculinity. Eventually, he gets over it. So Okonkwo goes to this guy, Oberika's house, to complain that Noi is a weenie, and also to taunt Oberika for not being manly enough to come along and murder Ikimafuna with the other men. So in trying to, like, make himself feel less shitty about this terrible thing he's done, he's trying to frame it by, like, going to this other guy's house and being like, why weren't you, like, tough enough to come out and watch me stab my adopted son, you puss? Good boy. Yeah, super healthy. Uh, but Oberika calls him out on his shit. He's like, dude, it was fucked up. And it's fucked up that you did it and are bragging about it. So there. 
And apparently no one's ever called Okonkwo out on his shit before because he just kind of leaves like, yeah, whatever, I'm, I'm a tough boy. I'm the toughest boy. Um, and then Zinma, his daughter, gets sick. And Okonkwo is upset that, you know, the kid he actually likes might die. And he's all anxious and worried. And he, he's so worried that he only spends a very little amount of time panicking that being worried about his sick daughter means he's a big feminine wussy. That's how you know it's serious. Super serial, guys. So Azinma survives, um, and there's a very weird interlude where she's, like, kidnapped by a priestess who runs around carrying her all night over the mountains while Azinma's mom, like, chases them because reasons, but it's all okay in the end, so we're just gonna skim over that. So time, as it does in this book, marches on, and an important village elder dies. How important is he? Super important? Yes. I, I was hoping for something funnier, but sure, you're technically correct. He's so important that he gets a special, like, 21-gun salute kind of thing. And during it, a boy, the dead guy's son, in fact, is accidentally shot dead. Three guesses who did it. The Undertaker. Uh, he likes murder. Jaws? Yes, it's Jaws. Jaws came up out of the ocean, uh, walked to Nigeria, grabbed a gun, and shot someone. That you, you, son you did of a it. Bitch. You figured it out. He is bloodthirsty. Achebe went in a. Uh, he made a very strange artistic choice. The book takes a very weird turn from here. No, Okonkwo did it. Moby it, Dick. It was no. The white whale. It was not any sort of aquatic based creature. Okonkwo did it. Except this time when Okonkwo killed a child, it actually was an accident, or as the people of the tribe call it, woman murder. Female Ocho. Yes, female Ocho, because accidentally killing someone is considered the feminine version of murder. Take from that what you will. I like the image of an exploding gun being feminine. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's, uh, well, I mean, it's it's not the fact that he was killed with a gun, which, yeah, is and like I, I assume it's like one of those muskets where, you know, you get the big cloud. Yeah. It's really, this big explosion. Well, it's not the method, which is very phallic, and we can examine that later, but it's the idea that it was on accident as opposed to intentionally shooting someone. Oh, those are different kinds of murder. Apparently one is the pansy wuss murder, I guess. <laughs> Uh, it still was in America. <laughs> they don't they, call it that, though. They don't call it, like... Female Ocho? <laughs> yeah, they don't call it female Ocho. They call it, like, manslaughter, <laughs> which has its own weird nonsensical no, implications. No, it's manslaughter. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> You're pronouncing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you like that one, huh? <laughs> I didn't see it coming. <laughs> uh, so instead of being put to death, which is how they would typically deal with one person in the tribe murdering another, Okonkwo and his family are banished for seven years to a neighboring village to stay with some of Okonkwo's extended family. So a get-out-of-town match? God! It is a great wrestling book. Apparently, there's, there's, there's like an instance of wrestling in the very beginning, and you turned it into Nigerian WWE. Oh, shit. 
So Okonkwo tries to work hard and be all intense and shit like he always is, but his heart really isn't in it. He can't even find joy in yam planting anymore, and you know what they say. He who is tired of yams has tired of life. Sad. Indeed. A couple years into the exile, Okonkwo's buddy Oberika stops by to give him the village gossip, notably that there are strangers in the village. White strangers who want to talk to them about Jesus. But the people of the tribe don't know this yet, because, you know, who can tell what these pale weirdos keep yelling about? Jesus. Well, yes, but they don't know that, because they don't speak the same language. So, more years of Akonko's exile pass, and slowly yet surely, the missionaries infiltrate village life. Not just at Okonkwo's old village, but the one that he's currently exiled to. Uh, winning over converts, building churches, etc. And who should join up with them? Jaws. Yeah. After after shooting the boy, he's, he's going to repent because he's found God. He's sorry. <laughs> he's so sorry for what he's done. He's so sorry what he did to Roy Scheider. I'm so... Pleasantville uh, <laughs> or whatever that town was called. Amityville. Amityville. Pleasantville. I'm so sorry for, for Cheno <laughs> to Cheno Achebe for what we're for what we're doing right now. And I'm even more sorry because honestly I would read the shit out of a book where Jaws jumps onto dry land, shoots someone, and then finds God and tries to get forgiveness. No, it's it's no way. He uh he's abandoned his family to take up with the white man. But when you know that your dad would A, let you get macheted to death, and B, be the first one to jump in there and machete you, can you blame him for wanting to get some distance? The answer is no. No. That no, no is the correct answer. So he's not all that clear on what this whole Jesus thing is about, but he likes the hymns and the stories because they remind him of the folktales that he would hear as a kid. Um, and Akonkwo, of course, disowns Noe and denounces Christianity as effeminate. Because if Noe's doing it, then it must be. That's good logic right there. Oh, yeah. Foolproof. Ironclad. Meanwhile, there is an uneasy peace between the villagers and the missionaries and their converts. The converts who have, like, been taken up with the, uh, missionaries. It's tense, as you might imagine. And then... Okonkwo's seven-year exile is at an end, and he comes back to town, and he thinks it's going to be this big old thing like, oh, fuck, Okonkwo's back. But his return is overshadowed by the, minist- uh, the missionaries bringing now not just religion, but their own judges and courts and justice and things and letting everyone know, hey, these are the laws now, and this is how we're going to do things, because we're white and we say so. You know, they're disrespecting the village's gods and laws and sacred rituals and just, you know, generally doing that whole forcible colonization thing the Western world is so well known for. Very, very on brand. So they were bringing civilization. Oh. Uh, 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 the future. Uh, Revolution. Uh, uh, but do you know why they were there? To spread the word of Jesus. Do you think they were just sitting around up there in Europe going, hey, you know what we should do? We should go spread the word of God. Well, Nothing no, else. it was, let's go take over all the land. And, yeah. oh, hey, there are these people there. 
and they're doing things not like how we do them, so they must be savage and terrible. Let's teach them about Jesus, and also, like, probably enslave them, because this land is our land now. This land ain't your land. We're probably mining for, what, diamonds? They were there for palm trees. Come again? See, from palm trees comes palm oil, which is a very good lubricant for machines, and since the Industrial Revolution was very underway... They needed lubricant. They were there for lube. Ha! Huh. Machine lube. They came and they colonized for the lube. These are the things you learn on Onole class. Mm-hmm. So, with that in mind, Okonkwo's like, what the fuck? No one upstages me, especially not some unmanly-ass white men. And so, after he gets sick of their, their shit and they're, like, specifically, like, denigrating all the rituals and all that fun stuff, he burns their church to the ground. This does not go well. Okonkwo and the other men who burnt down the church are arrested and suddenly find themselves subject to the English justice system, presumably with less goofy wigs and more human rights atrocities. Should have been a wrestling match. See, you're so anti-wrestling, but if they had just wrestled, he would have won and not... Killed. Yeah, but the English aren't gonna wrestle him. They're they're like weak and you would have won. Know. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So they're not gonna let him do it. Oh, football match. A, f- a football match. Some footy. This is a little bit of footy to decide whether or not you get to keep your village and your culture. Uh, no. So the village is able to bail the men out barely, and Conquo's like. Let's do a war, arg! And he decapitates a dude working for the court to get everybody all lamped up. Except, he realizes that no one else is willing to go that far. They let the other court messenger people escape, and Okonkwo realizes, like, they're they're not gonna go to war with him, because, as far as he's concerned, they're a bunch of pansies. So he laments that he is the last manly man in the land... And then he kills himself. Well, no one but, else was man enough to kill him. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody else is man enough to kill me. Guess I gotta do it my own goddamn self. Okonkwo, out. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, one of the missionaries, because they, they come to arrest him, and oh, except he's already dead, and one of the missionaries is like, gosh, what an interesting interlude in our our time in this, in this village with these savages. I will devote a chapter to this Okonkwo fellow in my book. Hmm, nah, actually, I can probably sum it up in one paragraph. Name of that book? The Pacification of the Primitive Tribes of the Lower Niger. Racist. So, (laughs) racist? (laughs) So yeah, uh, things fall apart. Where you work your ass off not to be a loser like your dad, become kind of a major dickhead who gets a reputation for being aggro as fuck, stab-murdering your adopted son, farming all them yams, and then, at the end of everything, ending up as a single paragraph in some white missionary asshole's book. And that's things fall apart. They did fall apart. They did. They they fell the hell apart. So, Megan, it may interest you to know. It, it may. That originally, this was only going to be the first of three sections in the book. That's a very long book. But uh, Chebe decided to limit it to just a Conquo, the yam farmer. Yeah, and then this book actually has uh, two sequels. The sort of, like, saga of a Conquo's, like, descendants. The second book is 
No Longer at Ease, and then the third one's called Arrow of God, and they're generally referred to as the African Trilogy, which seems a little broad, but sure. Are those the original trilogy? Are there prequels and sequels? I mean, there might be, but uh, at that point, we don't know if George Lucas was actually writing them or not. Is Jar Jar in these? Yeah, at the end of uh, Arrow of God, Jar Jar Binks pops up. So when uh, Chenoa originally wrote this, being the champion handwriter that he was, he handwrote it, which... No shit. Isn't very good if you want to publish. Not really, no. And so he saw an ad in a newspaper that a company would take your handwritten manuscripts and for 22 pounds, they would type it up for you. But the company was based in London and Chenoa was still very much in Nigeria. So he mailed the payment as well as the handwritten manuscript to London. Uh Uh-huh. It was the only handwritten manuscript that existed. Oh, no. He sent the only copy away. Oh, no. Now, after months and months and months and not hearing anything, he began to worry. As he didn't hear anything, he didn't receive anything back. Lucky for him, his boss at NBS was just going to London on her annual leave. And so when she was there, she stopped on in at the company and was like, hey, did you ever get this manuscript? What are you guys doing? And they were like, oh, you know, we'll get around to it. They were just chilling on it? And she apparently raised the whole stink, and so they basically immediately started typing it up and sent it back. And so he received the typed manuscript and his original only handwritten manuscript. He said that if something had happened, quote, I would have been so discouraged that I probably would have given up altogether. Can't say I blame him. But it worked out well, and we wound up getting the book, even though we almost didn't. So once he had a nice typed-up copy, he started sending it off, trying to find an agent, trying to get it published. And originally, people were like, you know, no one wants to read about African people. Doing African things? Um, And also that there was no market for African writers. However, he eventually did find a gentleman by the name of Donald McRae who read it and proclaimed, quote, this is the best novel I have read since the war. So he was very positive on it. The the war. The war. Now that would be like World War II as opposed to a novel called The War. Correct. Okay, just checking. It's his quote. I don't know if there's a real good book out there called The War that we're missing out on. So immediately they published 2,000 hardcover copies and it sold out. People loved it. They sung very high praises about the book. So it's always nice when we do these when, like, the book is actually, like, successful in the writer's lifetime and not, like, decades after they're dead. That's always like, oh, that's good. Now, this book is considered Achebe's best, also his first. So I guess his career started high. That's, t- that's tough. That, uh, that sophomore slump. Now, don't feel too bad for him. Um... It has sold over 8 million copies around the world. It's been translated to 50 different languages. And that makes Achebe the most translated African writer of all time. Nice. So one of the things that people realize about this book is that it was written in English. Yeah, well, also, while we're speaking about translations. Also known as the language of colonizers. The language of the oppressors. And so critics have had different takes on this. Some people... Unhappy with it. Achebe has always defended himself. Uh, to quote Achebe, English is something you spend your lifetime acquiring, so it would be foolish not to use it. 
also in the logic of colonization and decolonization, it is actually a very powerful weapon in the fight to regain what was yours. English was the language of colonization itself. It is not simply something you use because you have it anyway. So basically he's like, well, you made me learn this thing. I am now going to use this thing to tell you how much of a dipshit you are. Chinua Chebe, out! I think it's also important because this way he knew the people who had been the colonizers would read it. True. There was also one person in particular that Achebe was focused on at getting back at. Oh. That person, Joseph Conrad. Yeah, well, fuck him, but uh, continue. Author of Heart of Darkness. That's why fuck him. I hate that book. Like, like leaving just aside the fact that, yeah, it's like a horribly racist, racist book. It's also just a fucking chore to read. We're definitely going to do, like, a full episode of it later because I need at least 40-odd minutes to fully express my rage. But, yes, okay, so Achebe was, was, was telling Joseph Conrad to stuff it up his ass. If you have never read The Heart of Darkness... You're lucky. Just know that, at one point, Conrad refers to people living on the interior of Africa as, quote, rudimentary souls. Not very positive when it comes to the representation of people living in Africa. And so Chenoa came out and said, Conrad is, quote, a bloody racist. I mean, accurate. He uh, claims that the heart of darkness dehumanizes Africans and renders Africa, quote, a metaphysical battlefield devoid of all recognizable humanity into which the wandering European enters at his peril. Also accurate. He also then made a good career out of criticizing Conrad and people who were like Conrad and wrote racist works. And eventually, Achebe came to the U.S. where he was a professor for many, many years, and then he died. As one does, eventually. I do think it's interesting that the that this book is, like, considered, is supposed to be, like, specifically a fuck you to Heart of Darkness, because apart from the fact that Heart of Darkness is just really fucking racist, there's, they're not very thematically similar, I would say. I mean, I mean, they both have, like, colonization and, like, oppression and stuff, but obviously it's framed very differently in Heart of Darkness, but as uh, you now know, as you have listened to the whole plot, colonization doesn't become a factor in things fall apart until, like, the last third. So, like, two-thirds of the book are more focused on Okonkwo and, like, his intense hyper-focus on making sure that he's, like, nothing like his dad and he's the the biggest, toughest, punchiest man. I don't know, so that just kind of sticks out as, as odd to me. Well, I don't think the only audience was Joseph Conrad and Europeans. I think part of... The book is also speaking to Nigerians who were now left behind in a decolonized world at the point that Chenoa wrote this, that they had their independence at this point, they had formed their own government. And so I think part of the book was also to them that they don't need to necessarily cling to what the ancestors did. That's fair. You guys don't got to, we don't got to be aggro as fuck anymore. That there's a middle ground between being like, yeah, those white people were horrible and maybe we don't need to give everything up that they gave us and go back to what we were before, that maybe there's going to be a middle ground. Look at us doing, like, analysis and making observations and not comparing yams to penis size. We're maturing. 
I'm sad there was no recipe for like an awesome yam dish somewhere in this book. Yeah, really. Like at, at the end, yeah. And then Okonkwo killed himself. Go to the glossary for some fun fall yam recipe. In terms of adaptations, there have been several uh, major movie adaptations in Nigeria. It was also got a miniseries and a radio play. There really hasn't been a major adaptation of it stateside. But yeah, no, it's a club banger in Nigeria. Uh, anyway, the thing that most people will probably recognize that they might not realize has a reference to Things Fall Apart in it is Kendrick Lamar's single, King Kunta, off the super awesome album to Pimp a Butterfly. It's, there's just there's no way I'm going to come off this sounding good, because I'm too white for that, but basically, it comes up in the uh, second verse, when you got the yams, to which the chorus asks, what's the yams? And he says, the yam is the power that be. You can smell it while I'm walking down the streets. Oh, yes, we can. Oh, yes, we can. And then he does a whole thing about rappers not writing their own raps, and the yam apparently brought it out of Richard Pryor and manipulated Bill Clinton with desires. I think that's the only <laughs> reference we have to the yams. So, yeah, yams are powerful. Yams are masculinity. Yams make you do dumb things with your penis, apparently, according to Kendrick Lamar. Sounds like the M is the penis. Yeah, the M might be the penis. So, Megan. RJ. Things fall apart. They do. Good or bad? Okay, so, I mean, as I talked about before, didn't make much of an impression on me as a high school teenager. And obviously now, as an adult, I can understand it better. I can appreciate it more. I can see a lot more uh, themes that were going on there. So yeah, it's objectively good. I still don't like it all that much. I want to. I love the idea of Cheno Achebe writing this book and being like, fuck you, colonizers. So basically, I like the idea of Things Fall Apart more than the actual book. RJ, Things Fall Apart. The center cannot hold, etc. Good or bad? Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Look at that. You said all the words right this time. Thumbs up. Yeah? Yeah. I think it's an important work. It gives a voice to the effects of colonization. It gives us a voice from the inside. It was basically the first novel to do it. Gives a big F you to Joseph Conrad. And I can support anyone who does that. There you go. That's pretty much all we've got for you on Ono Lit Class. Uh, remember to listen to us on iTunes, subscribe to us. Um, we're also on like basically every other podcast listening app and platform imaginable now. Please rate and review us on iTunes because that's the only way we're ever going to get any kind of like visibility and we would appreciate it a whole, whole lot. In fact, if you leave us a review and a rating, we will give you a shout out about whatever the hell you want on the next episode, like on, on the following episode of which you do the thing. So if you want to say, like, happy birthday to someone, or fuck you to someone, or, you know, like, hi. Shut up, Meg. Yes, you can, you can do that. You can always listen to all of our episodes on onolitclass.com. Uh, the next episode will be on May 25th. So just want to say thank you to Best Day. As always, you, you can listen to more of his music on his SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash best-day. 
And uh, I think that's it. I'm Megan. I'm King RJ. We love you. Bye. Liam Neeson. Oh, we're referencing silence. <laughs> I was sitting here going like, wait, did Liam Neeson have like a religious experience? <laughs>